listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we seek to clarify distinctions between Mormon and Credo-Christian thought. I'm Brendan, here once again with... Me. You. Uh, yeah. In the house. How are you, man? Good. Yeah, just... Uh, yeah, I've been living life, spending some time grooming my beard and... It looks fantastic. <laughs> you have a great beard. I went to the barber, you know. <laughs> everybody everybody needs to have a good barber. It's, uh, it's just a fact of life. I believe it. So, anyways, yeah. I don't know. Noth- nothing too crazy. So I love the weather today. Yeah, we got a thunderstorm, which we don't get thunderstorms very often oh, in it. Provo, Utah. So, that's a mm-hmm. win. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, uh, you know, random question of the day. What's something, what's something new that you've learned recently? Oh man, um, yeah, I wish I had finished the paper for this moment. But I've I've been reading this academic paper on um, Native American voting rights in Utah history. Yeah, it was actually the last state of the union to extend voting rights. Wow to Native Americans, That's and it's shocking, the history of that. all things considered. Oh, man, I can't imagine the amount of research this guy had to do for this paper. Mm. It is so fascinating, though. Um, and it just, I thought it was a little ironic, like the state that has the people that thinks they're like literally Israelites and right. even romanticizes about their, you know, supposed Native American, you know, Nephite, Lamanite heritage or whatever. Yeah, no, it's surprising. It's, yeah, it is. That they were the last state. Mm-hmm. And um, of existing states, I'm imagining, right? Mm-hmm. Or was this post like 1948? Because Hawaii, I think, came in in like 48. Right. Yeah. And I, I you don't know. know. What? I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. Like how they would be categorized. Like, uh, yeah, I would assume the 48, but. Right. Yeah. You well, would I think because even Hawaiians. Yeah. Yeah. Because would they be considered <laughs> yeah. Native Americans? Native Americans. I, don't, you know, I don't think they'd want to be. Yeah, but I don't because they're more islanders, so right? I don't know, but it's it's a really really interesting paper. Yeah, I'll I'll uh, put the uh, source information in the show notes. Yeah, it's wild. We have a lot of uh, natives in our church actually, so uh, you know, I, I'd be curious. I you know, it's always fascinating how uh, things that are news to us aren't news to people who are of particular ethnic groups because mm-hmm. that kind of stuff tends to get passed down, you mm-hmm. know, from generation to generation. So yeah, I have to do some quizzing, see if for sure. <laughs> I, I want to learn a lot more than, than we do. What was that paper? What was it for? Was it a, it was in a, an academic journal, historical quarterly, um, not even that long ago. Hmm. I just got through the first few pages and was already wow. just like, man, kudos to this guy. I'm so glad there's people out there trying to document this stuff. Cause I mean, it's, not common knowledge. I'm sure yeah. it was just hundreds and hundreds of hours of work wow. to get this paper yeah. uh, done. That's cool. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? Uh, you know, I've been learning a lot about trees. <laughs> That's awesome, though. <laughs> yeah. A little less academic, but... Uh, well, it could be yeah, pretty no, technical, no, I'm sure. funny that, Well, yeah, I haven't really been getting into the technical side of things, but... <laughs> More, more so trying to figure out what in the world to do with my backyard okay. than probably the, the new information. So I've been, you know, reading about, uh, so we live in, uh, in Provo in a neighborhood 
that is on a rock bed, which, I mean, there's lots of rocks around here, but it's kind of up on an elevated location. And so the soil is super rocky, uh, which means that certain kinds of trees do not naturally grow well on that soil. And those are the trees that I happen to really want to plant in my backyard, like maple and oak trees. And so I've been learning uh, of how you can uh, you can inject the soil. Uh, so I've been kind of trying to figure out what would it look like to do that myself. But you can inject the soil with uh, with with iron to <laughs> give it nutrients that it needs in order to survive. I was like, that's wow. yeah. Anyway, anyway, so that's probably the most random thing I've been learning I lately. Love that. Other than that, I've just I've been probably my uh, hobby studies right now. I was just telling you before we got on here, uh, yeah. reading up on. Uh, ethical implications for uh, artificial intelligence and have just been starting to give that some thought. So uh, it's going to be, I've done a lot of, you know, that's one of the areas I I nerd out about Mm -hmm. is uh, how to, how do Christians rightly interact with technology? And Mm -hmm. I want to be balanced, you know, I don't want to be extreme. Uh, So I'm I'm not a total, uh, you know, uh, abstinence, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Like I've got, I've got the, devices and stuff but the uh the implications for artificial intelligence are going to be massive and so the question is how do christians ethically help our culture think through what are we as humans and how ought we to interact with our technology as humans and uh yeah not the first to think about that stuff obviously Um, even on our i mean even beyond artificial intelligence christians Mm -hmm. have always been thinking through how do we deal with these new uh, technologies, but, uh, yeah, it is fascinating to think, um, you know, one, one, uh, saying that we often use in Christian ethics is just because you can does not mean that you should. And, you know, our culture tends to be one of endless progression that thinks that, uh, anyone who wants to conserve an older way is just in the way. And, um, yeah, but I want to continue to ask those questions. Is this good for us according to what we know from God's Word and the Scriptures? Is this good for humanity? So right. anyways, well, I, I have no answers right now. I mean, I have lots of speculation, but I'd prefer to be much more well-read before I start uh, publicly <laughs> speaking on those things. Yeah. Well, you're talking to a guy with a flip phone that's still worried about the TV. Oh, so yeah. Watch when out. you were showing me some of this stuff... Yeah. Right before. Yeah. Messing with chat GPT. That was something else. Yep. Um, I can, I can tell you listeners, you will always get original sermons that are not (laughs) generated from artificial intelligence at first Baptist church of Provo. So yeah, if you want to make sure you're listening to a human and not a machine, then uh, yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I will give you that as a, <laughs> as a comfort. Well, yeah, I think plagiarism that way is a little harder to detect, right? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it it um, certainly is. You know, I when, when I read Amusing Ourselves to Death. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Neil Postman. Totally. Yep. Um, that is such a good book. I'd recommend people listen to it or read it. Yeah. Preferably even read it. but Or even better, read um, A Brave New World first. Mm-hmm. And then read the uh, Postman book because he's yeah. interacting with the mm-hmm. novel. Yeah did did you read 1984 and Brave New World? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which one scared you more? Um, I read them at very different points in time. Okay. So I read 1984 as a high schooler, and mm-hmm. then I I actually read uh, Brave New World probably like three or four years ago. 
And I think reading A Brave New World that much after just was kind of like, yeah, I think this is the direction things are going. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, know, for sure. Uh, versus the 1984. I, you know, bo- both are obviously possible. For sure. And probably can mesh together in, in different ways. Yeah, but, but I think Postman's right. Oh, yeah. Brave New World is more yeah. relevant in yep. some ways. I think 1984 is more quotable. Yeah. But Brave New World is more relevant. Yep. And uh, so, yeah, dear listener, way. go and go and <laughs> read yourself some good books <laughs> and think about technology, yeah, and how you ought to live with it or Media without ecology. it, yeah, mm-hmm. definitely, yep. All right, well, enough of that, yep. let's get into the material here. So, we are looking at the Come Follow Me curriculum for May 1st to the 7th. And that is looking at the text Luke 12 to 17, which, uh, you know, that's, you know, five chapters listed there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're not going to cover five chapters. They don't either. Uh, yeah. And then John 11 is thrown on there, which I know John 11, they focus on more in the seminary material, mm-hmm. but they throw like one random passage in here uh, or, or comment in here, I guess, but they don't really focus on John 11 anyway. So, they give that as kind of the big overarching uh, overarching uh, material to read. And the subtitle for the whole section is Rejoice With Me, For I Have Found My Sheep, Which Was Lost. Okay, and then in the subsections, they're really only dealing with pretty much two major passages or chunks. And then they're dealing, and then they mention two other passages uh, in passing, really. So uh, let's walk through those, and uh, we're going to focus most of our attention on the first couple of of passages. So let me just give you a quick overview of of what we're looking at in the manual. Starts in Luke 14, 15 to 24, and uh, that passage is the uh, parable that Jesus tells about the feasts, and really Luke 14 has a couple of parables of the feasts. Um, And so, yeah, that's what it's dealing with is, uh, you know, the one is the parable of where do you sit when you go to a feast? Do you sit in the honorable seat or in the least honorable seat? And Jesus says, you know, those who are of my kingdom ought to sit in the least honorable seat and be asked to move up if necessary, but should never seek out the most honorable seat. And then the other passage there is the one of the great banquet where, of course, this master invites these people to this incredible, huge, amazing banquet and they come up with excuses to not go to the banquet. And so the master says, well, let's go grab people off the streets and fill this banquet up because he will not do without a full banquet. And, uh, of course, he's applying all that to the Pharisees who, uh, he says, refuse to come to the banquet. Um, And yet here are all of these cripples, blind people, you know, those who were the the downcasts of society who are brought into the banquet. So we'll talk about that. But the subtitle there is No Excuse is Sufficient for Rejecting the Gospel. That's the uh, that's the subtitle. And so we'll work through that section here in just a little bit. And then Luke 15 is the parables of all of the lost things, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons. Uh, and so they focus a good bit on that. The subtitle for Luke 15 is we can seek out those who are lost and rejoice with the Father when they return. So we'll interact with those two sections a good bit. Just to mention the other two in passing, which we won't talk through a whole lot, there is Luke 17, 11 to 19, uh, and 
that's uh yeah, that well, let me just read the subtitle there. It's gratitude for my blessings will bring me closer to God. Uh is the subtitle on that one. And uh Russell they, they recommend a Russell Nelson talk there that's <laughs> about gratitude. Yeah. And uh yeah, so that's that that's the one of course uh, yeah, this that's the story of the 10 lepers who Jesus heals and uh nine of nine of them leave and never come back one of them returns and gives praise to him and he says where did the other nine go and of course the point is why why did only one return to praise me and so the lesson there that we're supposed to get is gratitude is good and so you ought to be a grateful person which we were just talking about this before a little bit um i feel like you have something you want to you look like you're ready to go or you you okay all right let me let me just read something here um, so this is something we keep running into. It's just these kind of corporate tactics, uh, you know, and, and as soon as I read this, I was like, yeah, I know exactly where they're getting this because if <laughs> any of you listen to productivity podcasts or read productivity books, I tend to like them myself for different reasons, but yeah. one really popular best-selling New York times, best-selling author, Michael Hyatt has written a bunch of books and I feel like all of his books have this as one of one of the elements but this is from his book Your Best Year Ever a five step plan for achieving your most important goals and uh, yeah listen to what what he has to say he has a whole chapter on gratitude and he says for a long time researchers have questioned the connection between gratitude and our ability to strive for important goals there's an unproven but widely held assumption that gratitude can leave people feeling complacent if I've got enough, the thought runs, then maybe I don't need to achieve more. You can see how that would be a goal killer. Why set goals when life is good as it is? But that didn't sound right to researchers Robert A. Emmons and Anajali Mishra. I totally butchered that, but we tried. Emmons and Mishra crafted a study comparing grateful and non-grateful goal striving. They had participants keep a gratitude journal as well as provide a list of goals they hoped to reach over a two-month period. Ten weeks later, Emmons and Mishra checked back and found the grateful participants were significantly closer than others to achieving their goals. Gratitude doesn't make us complacent, they said. Instead, gratitude enhances our effortful goal striving. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you just see those kind of business principles and prototypy <laughs> yeah. principles and modern psychology and, uh, you know, all that sort of self-care stuff get, mm -hmm. uh, get inserted right into their religion all over the place. So I think that's where that's coming from because you can see that the, the encouragement here for Luke 17, it has nothing to do with getting on your face and your knees and worshiping Jesus because he is God. He is awesome. He is powerful. It's just kind of like, how can we have more gratitude in our lives? Yeah. You know, how can we express gratitude? They see the benefits of Thanksgiving, of Eucharist, get the word Eucharist from it. Yeah. Um, and want the benefits without the object. Yep, which is yeah. ironic. In pop psychology, right? Yeah. And then the pop psychology then loops back in yep. to the churches. Yeah. And it becomes self-centered therapy. Yep. Um, there's a fantastic book. Oh, sorry. I was just quickly going to yes, insert please, the please. irony of that is that that's exactly what the 10 lepers got wrong. They wanted mm -hmm. Jesus for the benefits rather for the, than right. for him and <laughs> exactly. worshiping him for who he is. Yeah, yeah. and uh, there's a, it's just such a good book. Um, it's not going to be for everyone, but if you want an in-depth study of the biblical theology of Thanksgiving, 
Um, it's in the NSBT series, Thanksgiving, an investigation of a Pauline theme by David Powell. And he actually shows this theme is everywhere. But for Paul, uh, in ingratitude is always linked with idolatry and unbelief. And he shows that that comes out of a monotheistic worldview. Mm-hmm. Because if there's one God who's a creator of all things, and all things occur according to his will, yeah. you should be thankful for all things. Because what's happening, right, in any given moment, right, is a gift even in suffering. Yeah. And it's it's powerful. Mm-hmm. He shows that the theme of um, murmuring, complaining, gossips, stuff like that, why is that such a big deal? I mean, we see it culturally, and there's there's application there. But in salvation history, it's even worse, right? Mm-hmm. If you're in the covenant people of God, you see where we're going, you see where we've been. And in the Old Testament, there's always it's always rooted in, say, the Exodus. Or yeah. for Paul, it's rooted in Christ's cross and resurrection ascension, mm-hmm. right? And the, I guess the whole thing here is the object of gratitude. What, what are we thankful for is one thing. But really, biblically, the issue is who are we thankful for? Two, yeah, and that is the triune God and His work and our hope in Him and our gratitude toward Him, and then it extends to the horizontal. Yeah, but here, what is the? Where's the gravity of the worship? Is the self, and they want all these therapeutic benefits of gratitude apart from the object. Ironically, in the church that claims to be the one true church of Jesus, they don't even mention any of this. Yeah, and in the Nelson talk, even often he uses the phrase. The power. How he loves of gratitude, that word. Nelson's right? all about power. Yeah. yeah. Which, you know, I, I think that originates in a pagan mentality. Oh, absolutely. Of, uh, the gratitude is not really about the object mm-hmm. of, of who you're worshiping yep. um, in thankfulness, but instead it's a power that we exercise to become more godlike. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And the uh, object becomes the means of you since you're the object. Yeah. Right. So you can see the God in the equation. Yeah. But it's not the one God. Yeah. So that's just some quick, brief, you know, comments on that particular yeah. passage um, without sitting on it for too long. And then uh, we won't really mention anything here either, but they, they do mention in passing John 11, 1 to 46, which is the uh, death of Lazarus and Jesus calling him out of the grave and, you know, the the, the powerful story of, uh, of Mary, Martha, and, you know, we, Jesus weeping, overseeing their sadness in the situation. And, uh, you know, even when he knew he was going to resurrect him. And then Jesus later uh, in that passage claims, I am the resurrection and the life. So the subtitle of that is just Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. And uh, just kind of encourages class members to consider the perspectives of the people involved in this particular story. And how does this help uh, our faith in Jesus Christ. So, may I say one more thing sure. on the gratitude point? Sorry. Oh, yeah. Sorry, just the heading. Yep. Uh, <laughs> yeah, gratitude for gratitude my for my blessings will bring me closer to God. Yeah, um, you already said the the means point, but keep in mind DNC one thirty one verses twenty twenty one. Let me read this. There is a law irrevocably decreed in heaven before the foundation of this world, upon which all blessings are predicated. And when we obtain any blessing from God, it is by obedience to that law upon which it is predicated. Mm-hmm. So who really are we thankful to for our blessings? Yeah. Us. Exactly. And if it's not visibly apparent in this world why some people are more blessed in this life, 
they push it back to the pre-mortal world mm-hmm. in the way karma does in the East. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, I'll never forget hearing um, these guys. Um, it's actually up near Glacier National Park. And these guys were really into Edgar Casey, another one of these false prophets. <clears throat> and they told me, you got to read this book, Many Mansions. There's going to be some people out there that know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. But I was like, so what's, what's the big takeaway? This was my big, this was my thing. What, what about Edgar Casey's rant, ravings? And I mean that uh, technically spiritual possession. And then he speaks, it gives you the big takeaway on, you know, how, how you deal with life. Like, well, how has this been so liberating to you? Yeah. They said, well, I can look at the Holocaust and say they deserved it. Mm. Oh, <laughs> for real. Goodness. Yeah, there's new age for you. The dark side of new age. Yeah. All right, let's jump on back here to Luke. Let's start with Luke 14, 15 to 24. And uh, yeah, so so let me just remind you, the subtitle here is there's no excuse. No excuse is sufficient for rejecting the gospel, boy, that sounds exclusivistic, yeah. right? I mean, it's yeah. just, uh, you know, again, what, what we're going to find as we read through some of this stuff is on the surface, a lot of it sounds like things that evangelical Christians could affirm. But as we've talked about over and over again, once you get beneath the surface and you understand what they mean by the words that they're using, what LDS people use mean by the words they're using, um, it's a different definition for that word. So when they say no excuse is sufficient for rejecting the gospel, you know, the key phrase for us there is going to be the gospel. What is the gospel, right? right. And uh, we've talked o- over and over again about how there's a difference in what the gospel is, even from our perspective versus theirs. But uh, in this section, they say to help class members study the parable of the Great Supper, you might invite them to an imaginary party that you will host. (laughs) Let them share some reasons why they might or might not attend. Read Luke 14, 15 to 24 together and discuss the excuses the people in the parable made when they were invited to a feast that represented the blessings of the gospel. What excuses do people make today? for failing to accept accept the Savior's invitations to receive Heavenly Father's blessings. Perhaps class members could share blessings they have received when they have made the sacrifices necessary to live certain gospel principles. Okay, let's read the text of Scripture, and then I'm going to turn it over to you to make comments on the LDS interpretation, and then we'll just kind of go from there. So... The parable of the great banquet is uh, what this section is well known as. They reference verses 15 to 24. I'm actually going to start at verse 12 just for a little more context. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Okay, so here's starting in verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him, this is Jesus, by the way, reclining at table with some Pharisees. He's having lunch with some Pharisees. This is his last interaction with Pharisees in the Gospel of Luke, so it's a significant one. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. 
And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the servant of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Ready, set, go. Yeah, well, I, I think it's interesting that even just the start of this section in the Sunday School Manual has them just imagine a party that they host without any uh, sense of what that means. Right. Jesus is the host of this banquet in what the Old Testament taught as the banquet to come. How disrespectful, frankly, mm. that is um, to say, oh, you know, Isaiah 25, who hosts the banquet? It's the Messiah. It's the God-man, right? the one who will eat death. And we see a future banquet to come that the Lord's Supper is also a foretaste. There's an already but not yet feature of the Lord's Supper. And and I just think that's, no, do they show the prophecy of Isaiah? Do they show the hint at Leviticus or, you know, all these? No, they don't. They say, oh, imagine you host a party. You know, how rude is it? It's as though nobody showed up. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Again, it's just kind of like any party. Yeah, evading the context of the text, not really trying to dig into what the meaning is that's going on here, right? Just immediately jump into that application again. Absolutely. Um, And so, um, so the grand scene here is that Jesus is referring to something the Pharisees would have known of, which was the messianic banquet. Yeah. What does that mean about Jesus? Yeah. And of course the disciples uh, were looking forward to this banquet all the way to the extent that, uh, that who was it? Was it uh, Thomas's who? No, Levi's. It was one of a couple of the disciples, Mom, I couldn't remember. I'm blanking on what it was, but she asked Jesus, "Can my sons be, you know, mm. at your right hand yeah. at your table?" And that's anticipating this messianic banquet. And uh, of course, Jesus is like, "Oh, you're you're thinking about the wrong things. Right. Like you, you don't know the kind of meal that I'm about to serve up. It's a it's a cup of suffering, right?" Yeah. Well, and in Isaiah 25, you see it there because what who, what is eaten by Yahweh is death. Yeah. So there's also this. Uh, subtext going on here of what what's to come for Jesus. Yep. Um, now, notice how it starts. I, I in fact, I love I love this parable. Mm-hmm. Um, but blessed, once again, one of these blesseds is anyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. This is David Ridges, right? Our institute guy. Yeah. So this is an LDS LDS institute. On that, yeah. On this verse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you were to go to Deseret Book. Uh, they would be pushing his commentary for this year. Um, and it's been a while. Deseret book for people who don't know. Oh, sorry. A, yeah. <laughs> a church a, owned book. An store. LDS church owned book. Store. They sell more yep. books, though, art and whatever. Yeah. Um, Is that art generated by artificial intelligence <laughs> or oh real boy. humans? <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Keep going. You're good. 
Um, this is his comment literally on blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Lives worthy to be with God in heaven. Mm. So already he's setting the stage for the people who are there, right, are the worthy those ones. worthy to be there. And yet, no, notice, it the, the whole irony is that those who you would think would be there mm-hmm. find reasons not to be. And then he doesn't just say, go out and invite others and yeah. respect their agency. Yeah. He says, compel some, some translations, right? Come grab yeah. them. They're blind. They're lame. These are people that could not of their own will and ability make it. And he yeah. says, bring them in. Yeah. Bring them in. And, and, and notice the climax, just to show Ridge's continued thinking in verse 22, yet there is still room, um, or yet there is room. Um, this is his comment. We still have more room, symbolic of the fact that there is plenty of room in the celestial kingdom for everyone who wants to qualify to come. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. Who, who, this bread, who's feeding? Yeah. Who's there? Who's hosting? Yep. Who's bringing people? Yeah. Right. I mean, it's ironic in the same lesson as the coin. Can the coin find itself? The sheep, can the sheep find itself? Can the, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's just, Unbelievable how man-centered, self-centered LDS theology truly is. And therefore, if you are the center, yeah. no wonder the gods start to look like you. Mm-hmm. I mean, it <laughs> reminds me of that uh, wisdom. Uh, there's wisdom in the saying from the ancient Greek, right? If horses imagine gods, they look like horses. Yep. That's Mormonism for yeah. you. Def- I mean, it even butts up against the... Parable of the wedding feast that's right before it is, yeah. uh, you know, if, if you if you think that you are worthy, you know, if you, <laughs> if you think that you ought to be sitting at the uh, highest place in the table, you're actually the one who's missed it. You're, you're yeah. gonna you're gonna be put down. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas those who are humble and think themselves nothing mm-hmm. are the ones who are ultimately going to be exalted. So, right. yeah, I mean, it's just like this striving for worthiness uh, versus realizing your utter unworthiness to be at the banquet at all. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that's, you know, that's, in fact, just the verse, right? Verse 11, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Yeah. Not you get humble and that's how you exalt yourself. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. And yeah, it, it, there's no irony here. For, for them. I mean, I, I just think this is um, such an interesting parable. I mean, it, it, it's sad that we have to deal with it over and over. Of course, that's the point of the podcast. Why oh, am yeah. I complaining? Oh, but yeah, for sure. just we're dealing with so much just bad interpretation, eisegesis, making things that are glorious about who Jesus is, who the triune God is, working in history, actual history, not made up, fake mm-hmm. history like the Book of Mormon. And it's hard not to get cynical and get jaded when it comes to how scandalous these stories really are yeah. about who God is when he chooses to save who he wants. Yep. Um, right. I mean, cause I mean, think of even the Levitical laws of, you know, the lepers and I mean, there's just so much going on here and instead to turn it into some, well, if you're worthy, I guess you, qual- yeah, there's plenty of room if you qualify as if anyone could. But Jesus, right? Um, I I like uh, what Snodgrass says, and, and by the way, for all of these, Snodgrass and Ken Bailey are great. I'll put you know uh, sources in the show notes. Mm-hmm. He says this. Um, I love the both parables that, of course, he's talked about the banquet and the feast, right? Right. Teach that we cannot have the kingdom on our own terms. 
The invitation of grace brings with it demand. At stake is the issue of a person's identity. It is not enough to wear the right label, the invited one. Rather, the kingdom must shape identity Hmm. so that one has a whole different set of concerns. You look at it, marriage, land, you know, the excuses that come, right? The warning of Luke must be heard. The biggest obstacles to discipleship are possessions and family. But they are also the biggest opportunities for discipleship. Hmm. I, I think he says that very well. That you know, it's um, especially how eating together in the ancient world. Yeah, that's where honor, shame, dine. I mean, there's so much meaning to eating with somebody in the ancient world yep. that in our fast food kind of culture um, is often missed. Yeah, um, and so there's a lot of theology just wrapped up in all yeah. these things. It's interesting. We've been watching a. Uh, show uh, my wife and I lately uh, been I feel ashamed to admit been watching some Downton Abbey <laughs> but uh, yeah so, some of the things we were even just talking about uh, were uh, well I mean in the context we were talking about the uh, the all of the red carpet so to speak being rolled out for the king and just the honor that was shown to the king yeah. of England mm-hmm. and it's just talking about how you know I think we miss so much of the significance of the kingship language that's used in the Bible because we're so far removed in our, you know, democratic Republic, yes. you know, 21st century America, we forget how much honor is due to the King, how much reverence ought to be shown to the King in, in an earthly King yeah. for that matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think in a, in a like manner that show uh, shows a lot of the, the, uh, you know, mid uh, 20th century English, table fellowship and how there were rules that were in place of who you could dine with and who you shouldn't dine with, who was allowed to sit at the table that was in the upper room versus the servant's table that was downstairs removed from where all of the important people sat and where the important things happen. And yeah, in that same way, there was a, there was a table culture in uh, the ancient near East and table fellowship was extremely significant. And so who you would even choose to eat with um, showed a, a level of approval to them, which is why Jesus got so you know heavily accused of mealing with uh, with sinners and tax collectors. Which, by the way, that's what Luke is getting after over and over again. He's writing to a Gentile audience, and he's trying to show them the the Jews, by and large, have rejected this Messiah, and now it's those that you would least expect who are being brought in. And that is the fundamental meaning that's going on, even in this parable, is Jesus is dining with these Pharisees, and they're having all these rules and expectations of what it means to have this, uh, you know, this table fellowship. And even in, uh, you know, the beginning in, in verse 12, it says, uh, it says, and he said to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or let your relatives or rich neighbor or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor. This would have been pretty convicting at a you know wealthy Pharisee's house that Jesus yeah. is calling all this stuff out. Yeah. Like, hey, you invited the wrong guys to this party, man. Like, where are where are the poor people? Like, are you looking to get repaid? And of course, that was the whole deal. Is yeah. the Pharisees thought that they were going to get repaid, and that was a that was their whole system of religion. You do the things that make you worthy and you get repaid on the last day. And so I think Jesus is in a subtle way calling out the false religion here, or maybe not so subtle, but verse 14, and you will be blessed uh, because they cannot repay you 
for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So what does it look like to live in the kingdom of God? Well, you don't do your religion because you think you're going to get something out of it, right? Yep. You, you don't become this religious person because of the return on investment, essentially. And isn't yep. that the very nature of false religion? Yep. All false religion is bent towards doing the religious practice because it's going to pay off in the end. Right, and that's how they keep you on the hook in a in a false religion. Is it, it kind of just keeps leading you on, like there's a goal that you're attaining here, um, and you're gonna get you're gonna get yours. You're gonna get repaid on that last day, and that's total. That's the total opposite of the kingdom of God as Jesus is laying it out here. It's not about getting repaid. It's about being those lame people, those crippled people, those people who have been welcomed into the kingdom of God apart from anything that you could have done or did do or would do. Um, and so you you don't live in this sense of I'm doing my religion so that I can get repayment on the resurrection day, <laughs> right? Right. It, it's it's almost like you anticipated what David Ridges sees as a positive here. His comment on verse 14 that you just read on the resurrection. He, this is what he says: Your payment, your payment, will be that you are resurrected with the righteous and enter celestial glory. Yeah. Which is exactly the, the opposite, opposite of what Jesus is saying there. He's condemning the Pharisees for the way that they approach their table fellowship. It's all it's all a system of, you know, trying to elevate yourself yep. and exalt yourself and do the good religious things and be in the right social circles and yeah. all this different stuff so that you get the the payment on the last day. God's gonna tell me I did a good job, <laughs> you know. Um versus the reality. And so so Jesus tells the whole parable in response to that in the context, right? Uh, the whole parable is about the fact that the Pharisees ultimately are going to be the ones who aren't at the banquet at all. They're, they're going to be making excuses uh, to not go to this particular banquet and uh, whatever those excuses may be. And the excuses that are given, I don't think are particularly significant except for the fact that Jesus is is trying to show them how ridiculous those excuses are. Because, of course, in the ancient Near East, you don't deny. If you're invited to a feast, you go to it no matter what. Like, that's an honor-shame issue. You you never have an excuse to not be at the table if someone has extended table fellowship to you. So Jesus is, I think, telling these almost silly examples meant to, uh, in a sarcastic way, provoke them to realize um just, just how ridiculous it is that they are denying Jesus when he's right in front of them and uh, are refusing to come into his feast because they think their feast is more important. But, uh, yeah, the excuses are, uh, another said, I've bought a, uh, uh, the first one says, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please yeah. have an excuse. It's like, I'm sorry, I can't come to your incredible banquet, like the banquet of all banquets, probably yeah. a multi-day banquet where – the host is spending all this money in order to make it this extravagant, beautiful, glorious thing. Oh no, I, I got to go check out some dirt, right? Like, yeah, I, I got to check the stock market today. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm I'm a little busy with with some and the other guys. Oh, I just bought five yoke of oxen, and I have to go examine them. Of course, yep. that means he was a pretty well-to-do person. But yeah. it's like you 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 can't take a break from that to right. come to the banquet. That seems pretty lame. And then of course the last marriage. One, yeah, I have, I have, I'm married. I have a wife. I can't, I can't come. <laughs> but it, you know, you could see in a certain context. I mean, these are so realistic. These yeah, examples. That's right. And and that's something Snodgrass emphasizes that I really like. Ken Bailey does as well. Yep. This honor shame dynamic of banqueting is not lost as much on uh, 
the Middle Eastern church yep. as it is on us and democratic, individualistic, narcissistic America. Um, and yet these excuses are, I mean, it's like, sounds like excuses for, and this includes me, excuses yeah. for not making it to church. Yep. And Snodgrass, I almost didn't even say what Snodgrass emphasized. He's, he, his point, one of his points is that do Christians have this sense when they invite people to church or what church is? Mm. Of the, this is the banquet, right? Part of what is so interesting about these excuses, and it might be relative to the person hosting, yeah. is he didn't match what they expected in terms of the extravagance yeah. that was desired. That's right. Jesus didn't fit the messianic expect. He didn't fit the bill of what the messianic Messiah, sorry, yeah. Messiah should be according to how they imagined him to yep. be. And so, even though he's here, yeah, he is here. They are like, well, I, yeah. I got to see how bill collectors are doing. I got to yep. check the news. Yeah. They're, they're I got to check my Facebook trying to, feed. Trying to back away from them. Got, right. Got more when, important things to do. Or, or like family. Or, you yeah. know, I mean, that's a big Well, yeah. Well. And I, I thought that was so fascinating. I don't know. Did they deal with the cost of discipleship passage? I didn't look at any of the other um, materials. No. But I, you know, it's just, it, it just I seems mean, like. just did, but. It seems like really. the kind of passage they would skip, right? Yeah. Because. Uh, so much of the LDS thinking yep, nope. is this, I think, you know, if I could just speak as an evangelical Christian, um, and I think it's clear that uh, if you've been listening to this podcast for long enough that, uh, um, you know, you know where we stand on whether or not we think that LDS people are worshiping the right God. But uh, if I could just speak very clearly I think one of the things that will keep LDS people out of the feast is family. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's one of the biggest things. And and for them to even not comment significantly in any of the material that I saw on the cost of discipleship passage that immediately follows this, where I think the idea is continued in uh, what it means to follow Jesus. It, It means that you don't see yourself as an important person who's seeking exaltation, who's doing everything right, who is you know, depending upon your family. Uh, no, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife yep. and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Yep. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desire to be... Anyways, and it just goes on from there. But yeah, I mean, what, what excuse would you make to not follow the true Jesus as you see him revealed in the Scripture? Uh, he's not a Jesus who's all about your honor. He's not a Jesus who's all about your fame. He's not a Jesus who's all about your exaltation. Um, he's a Jesus who you run to and you worship in gratitude for what he has done for you. And you find that as your, all, as your all-encompassing joy to, to worship him and to love him and know him and, and relate to him. And you're willing to lose everything to be at that banquet. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you, you're not going to make an excuse. You're going you're gonna to be there because Jesus is all and everything to you. Yeah. That's what it means to be a disciple. Yes, absolutely. There's a challenge in this. Uh, proclamation of the kingdom is a challenge to respond to the invitation of God. Yeah. And just as Jesus challenged at this time and place, in a dateable moment in history, the text documents it and through the church and the proclamation of the word that challenge continues as we wait for him to come again mm-hmm. and we look forward as it shows in revelation to the fulfillment the eschatological consummation of the feast prophesied by isaiah that's right that has begun in some sense 
yeah. in the ministry of Jesus, yeah. and, and with, then we'll be finally I think, Well, and I think the institution of the Lord's Supper absolutely is. Um, this is my body. This is my blood. This right. is what you feed on yep. as a church mm-hmm. spiritually. And yep. uh, yeah, and that is all anticipating that day when we will be at the banquet table right. of God, um, enjoying a feast together that will be unlike any other. Right. And I, I just love this, especially coming out of LDS culture, That's it still has this kind of honor-shame dynamic based on success. How many people, if, I don't know if you've seen this recent video Ed showed me, Ed Romine, um, of a Christian pastor, although they're very vague on details. I'm like, mm-hmm. what if we did a video that was like, uh, a Mormon elder has con- oh, yeah. <laughs> has converted, like they're right. really vague. So right. I'm like, did he like volunteer to church for... A couple months. Right. But I don't know if you saw this. Uh, it's getting all this attention. He became LDS or whatever. One of his main reasons was the lives and basically resumes of the LDS general authorities. Yeah. And it's just so opposite to the attitude Jesus is. I mean, Jesus. Right. I, 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 I mean, it's just like yeah. literally... If you want, you the should be looking for mindset. the banquet where the blind people, exactly. the lame people, the crippled people, the people who couldn't get themselves yep. into the banquet. That's the that's the people that Jesus is called. Yeah. yeah, to quote Snodgrass, the kingdom is still and will be like a banquet at which those who were supposed to attend were too preoccupied to come, and others not expected to attend come and enjoy the feast. The expected are absent, and the unexpected are present. And who is more unexpected than? Than us. Yeah, absolutely. Like while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Yep, that's right. All right, Luke 15. Um, so we get into the famous parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son is what it's referred to, but really probably is better titled the parable of the the two lost sons and their father. Um, so the subtitle here is we can seek out the, this is in the elder cur- curriculum. We can seek out those who are lost and rejoice with the father when they return. And really the general thrust of the material, uh, let me just read some the, the class could look for and share answers to questions like these as they look at Luke 15, what words in the parable reveal how heavenly father feels about those who are lost. Yeah. <sighs> got a finger up over there <laughs> sorry keep going in the, in just that index we finger. should come back to that oh my goodness like oh uh, he's, he's just trying his best like, yeah you know. <laughs> what do the parables suggest about how we should reach out to all of god's children again that's assuming that every human in the world is god's child which we know is not a biblical way of understanding things at nope. all um, class members should share how the savior has found them when they have felt Lost and notice interesting felt yeah not actually were yep I felt lost yeah once again the emphasis on the subjective there's not an objective guilt here yeah for sure (sighs) um yeah and then it's just kind of focus on the words actions beliefs of each person in the parable try to think what they were thinking sort of a thing what have we learned from each person so again it's just put yourself in the shoes of these different characters and what do you learn about these different things. Uh, it says, what does the Father's counsel in the parable teach us about how we should feel about those who are lost and those who return to the gospel? Um, so, yeah, how should we feel about, uh, based on what the Father does in the story, how should we feel about uh, the way that we respond to people who, I guess, in their minds, come back to the LDS church after they've wandered away? 
Um, and then they recommend a quote from Jeffrey R. Holland, where he says this, and he's making an observation on the prodigal son's older brother in the story. He says, this son is not so much angry that the other has come home as he is angry that his parents are so happy about it. Uh, it's interesting they put parents because there's no mother in the story. But uh, he is yet to come from the compassion and mercy, the charitable breath of breadth of vision to see that this is not a rival returning. It is a brother. As his father pled with him to see, it is one who is dead and now alive. It is one who is lost and now found. Okay, a lot of convoluted language, a lot of language that honestly, again, would sound pretty similar to some of the things that we would say. But as you understand the basis of all of this interpretation, you start to see the important differences. So, Skylar, help us out a little bit here with, with some of your thoughts on this. Yeah, well, the, the Sunday school manual was a little less interesting than Ridge's this yeah. week. Um, once again, that how does Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ feel? Of course, they don't have an impassable God. That's just something to point out. Um, and um, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll link to James Dolezal in the show notes for those who want to know. You know, God doesn't feel emotions the way we do because he's not a man. Right in himself, right? Um, I do think it's interesting they assign the symbolic significance of the father in the story to the father, even though in the text it's wrapped up in what Jesus is doing, right? What's they're saying? This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them, and then he responds with this parable and tells these three parables, um, showing he's, you know, like the woman, he's like the shepherd, he's like the father. Um, and, uh, I mean, you can kind of see... Uh, they, they talk about how God values all people. Once again, this the judgment is kind of, uh, not kind of, it is impersonal, even in the question in the manual, right? Uh, how does Heavenly Father feel about those who are lost? Well, once again, we're monotheists. Yeah. We don't think hell is some impersonal result of the natural consequences based on eternally existing law of your actions. Mm-hmm. Like, God created hell, and he's going to punish people there. Yeah, and Jesus even talks that way. Um, that that's something, by the way. <laughs> I am a member of a Reformed church. That being said, I really like Dante's Divine Comedy. Mm. I, I know a lot of people are going to dislike that I like it, but that's something that became clear to me in Dante's Inferno. Is he actually saw God's hand in the judgment of these people and uh, really challenged uh, once again this kind of lurking paganism in me that saw hell as kind of just like a place you ended up going. Everybody has a relationship to God. The question is the nature of that relationship. Is it a saving relationship or a judging and damning relationship? Yeah. And they don't really have that. So they they make it, well, he's trying his best because he loves everybody. He loves everyone. Everyone's his kid. And they even have this in here. Recognize my individual worth is one of the headings. And they cite this Dieter Uchtdorf talk, you are my hands, which made me think of liberalism. We are Jesus's hands. Actually, his hands are, you know, in, you know, on the throne, on his body, (laughs) the resurrected body. We're not his hands. Uh, He has hands. Every person is a VIP to our heavenly father. Is Judas is, I don't know. So it, that, anyway, David Ridges is more interesting. Let me show you what he does with this parable. He says, um, focusing on the two brothers, the compassionate father and the two brothers. Um, he says the point of the parable is uh, the potential for exaltation. Okay, uh, 
how does that work? Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> in fact, uh, jumping to the end, right, the best robe, he says, is symbolic for the potential for the highest status. Once again, this highest status. Okay. Mm-hmm. In other words, exaltation. Okay. Um, let me show you, just walk through some of these and read his um, interpretation. If you have the text open, I'm going to make this a little quick, but you'll, it'll, you'll get more out of it. I just don't want to read reread all yep. of this. Uh, verse 12, he says, um, uh, where he talks, you know, Father, basically die, right? The inheritance, if you, you demand your inheritance before your father's dead, mm-hmm. it's basically saying, go die. Yep. And uh, Ken Bailey's work on this parable is the best I've seen. The Arabs are more sensitive to this. The Middle Eastern Christians get this parable better than we do in the West. Yep. Um, culturally. So, but this is his view. I'm not interested in future exaltation, but rather want to enjoy the ways of the world now. And then he says, he divided unto them his living. Our Heavenly Father respects our agency. Mm. There it goes again, yeah. There's agency, right? See? So he obliges, so that must be, well, because he's got to respect our agency. I mean, we got a cosmic constitutional right, of course, to life, liberty, and agency or whatever. Uh, Riotous living, he says, he wasted his potential. Oh, (laughs) that literally is like the bad example used by Michael Horton in his stuff on Christless Christianity. Right. Is this emphasis on, oh, it's not like sin. It's like your potential, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, 14, the mighty famine. Here, Once again, here's this impersonal hell thing. It can't be God that causes the famine, even though that's an Old Testament teaching. Satan left him with no support. That's his interpretation of the famine. Whoa. He came to himself. Once again, he says he started repenting. Now, to be fair, a lot of Western interpreters have seen him coming to himself as repentance. Ken Bailey, I think, is the necessary corrective on that. That's not how the Middle Eastern Church has seen that. Yeah. Explain that just real quick. I yeah. Good time to insert that little yeah. bit. Yeah. I, I won't be able to give it the, the detail it deserves. Yeah. But um, so in in the text, he um, when he says... This, this he, is on specifically on the parable parable of the prodigal son. Right, right. And... Yeah. and um, when he's, you know, eating the scraps from pigs, you know, you're in a far country, right? Uh, this word for coming to himself, it doesn't mean repenting. It's like uh, when Peter um, comes to himself, um, realizing he's free. Mm. That's that's the word. It's like you, you you realize, oh wait, like what's going on here? Yeah. And does that mean repenting? No. Just keep reading. Um, he says, well, you know, my father's has you know slaves that have bread. Um, and I'm dying of hunger. So I'm going to go and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and, bef- uh, and before you. Um, that is a quotation from Pharaoh, actually. Yeah. And the yeah, Pharisees I, would have known that. Yeah. And I've seen other scholars, too, just aside from that, who have interpreted that as a, as a form of worldly sorrow. Yeah. Um, you well, know, yeah, it's yeah. A, it's a sort of, it's mm-hmm. a sort of sorrow that, that uh, leads to what can seem like repentance, but it really is just like, man... Uh, this this is making my life harder than I want it to be. So you know, if I if I just go back to my father and am a, a servant, I'm going to have better food than I have when I'm here eating out of the 
pigsty, right? Right. Um, he's so still, it's, it's he just, still wants it's to eat. It's self-seeking still, yep. right? Um, I want to eat. Ultimately, yep. I mean, he's thinking of his belly, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And he's also thinking the issue's uh, going to be the money, yeah. right? He's, he's like, I'm going to go back. Uh, you know, I'll work as a hired hand. I'll pay That's back right. the money. I'll fix it. Yeah. I, can, I can fix it myself. Yep. That's the point. Yep. It's not repenting. <laughs> yep. It's how can I get back into my father's favor, That's right. save face, and fix it myself? And once again, the social dynamic of this culture would have realized that something like this, you come back shameful, I mean, pigs, whatever, um, that you, they, they had something called the Kazaza ceremony where basically that no one would re, um, even recognize your presence in the town. Mm-hmm. And that's what's significant about the father running out, uh, doing what a father doesn't do in the Middle East, in Middle Eastern culture. No, no, mama, mom can do that. Yep. Mom can do that, but not the father. Yeah. No, he runs out. While we were yet sinners, yeah. Christ died. While he's still in sin, thinks he can fix the problem, he then comes and saves him. Yeah. So what, what all of the accounts in chapter 15 have in common is the seeking and the joyful finding. Um, and so, yeah, the, I mean, the idea here, you've got to know verse one of chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him Yep. in verse two. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Yep. And then Jesus goes on to tell these different parables that there's a hundred sheep, one's lost. Jesus is the protagonist. Jesus is the hero here, which by the way, even in the parable with the father, the father is not heavenly father of LDS thinking. No. Jesus is the hero here who's yeah. going after the sinners and the tax collectors. That's mm-hmm. the context of the passage. You've got to understand the context in order to interpret things correctly. Yep. So he goes out and he seeks the lost sheep and finds it. Yes. And brings it back in. And there's rejoicing that he's found this. And then the mm-hmm. parable of the lost coin. Someone loses a coin. It's a lot of value. It's like one-tenth of of a year's wages and this person seeks after this coin and finds the coin and says goes to says rejoice with me i found the coin that was lost again here's the imagery seeking finding rejoicing jesus is the one seeking the sinners Mm -hmm. finding them yeah heaven's rejoicing over this going on Mm -hmm. then the parable of the uh, parable of the prodigal son follows exact same pattern when the father runs out after the son um, against all expectation in ancient Near Eastern culture, yeah, runs out and kissed him, pulls up his his garbs, yep. you know, exposes his legs, sprints yep. out. Yep. The father seeking the son who is not yet yep. even fully repentant, yep. um, seeks him out, embraces him, and then how does the account end with this magnificent rejoicing? Right, right, this right. feast that's put. So they can get back into the feast. It's kind of cool to see all those things. It, it totally and tied and together. Notice they they say, "Oh, you know what's bad? He's welcoming sinners and eating with them." You know what he's saying? Worse than that. Yeah, way way yeah. worse than you yeah. think. Oh yeah, I'm God. I became man. I you know I don't know you know diapers you know like yeah. like all those things that we think God, that's that's not God of course LDS think that is God's but yeah. <laughs> no if you have the right God <laughs> um, it, it, that, that's scandalous I mean yep. there was even early church fathers right or, or de- people they were debating with that were in the early church are like God's not a baby two or three days old like like the, the shame of the cross the shame of his humanity 
is here. And he's like, no, 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 it, it, I more than welcome them. Yeah. I go find them and I bring them in and I save them. Yeah. I don't just eat with them. I feed them eternal life. Yep. That's right. And so the condemnation is on the, the Pharisees who don't think God is like that. <laughs> right. But think that God is a God who rewards people for their own work and their own effort and their own striving yeah. and their own goodness, just like the older brother. Yeah. Right. And I, I do think um, whether it's in this, this is debated, whether it's already here or this is just an application by the early church, I do see this Jew-Gentile divide as something that this parable would have been powerful for. Ken Bailey points out in the Middle Eastern church, this this parable, parable which are the three stories, has been seen as the gospel within the gospel for over 1,500 years. I mean, there were you know bishops at Nicaea from Saudi Arabia. By the way, Bishop of Rome wasn't there, but we had bishops from Saudi Arabia <laughs> there. <clears throat> um, and... Um, and why? Because, I mean, this, every one of these stories, right, was the coin able to find itself? No. Was the sheep able to find itself? No. And that's the thing. This isn't different. Yep. We are unable, right. apart from God, to come to him. Yep. It, it, we are all fallen in Adam. And that goes for the one who breaks the law and the one who seemingly keeps it. Yeah. Because that's the thing, right? The dynamic, I mean, this is Ro the Romans' argument, but in the teachings of Jesus already, right? Yep. Which is, you know, you have Gentiles apart from the law, you have Jews with the law, and yet all alike are condemned, right? Whether by the law within or the revealed law without, um, both coming from the same God, of course. And, and yet he, in spite of our sin, right, right. saves us. Gets right. in the mud, gets on, gets on her hands and feet, finds the coin, right? Yep. And um, I don't know it, to to find agency and exaltation and celestial glory. And <laughs> I mean, the whole point is even the ending is suspenseful, right? Mm -hmm. Because he comes out just when you think, oh man, uh, to quote Ken Bailey, right, reprocessing his anger into grace. And you think, wow, yep. this son that wanted him to basically dead for his own self-seeking. And then all of a sudden you have the other brother who's been in the household working the whole time. And they're like, what the heck? We've been doing this the whole time. See the Jew Gentile kind of divide, oh, yeah. um, how this would be applicable. And yet what does he do to, to this other son? Which this was also, but this is in public. He's fighting with his father. And what does he do? Same thing. He celebrates. Mm -hmm. He celebrates. Yep. And and I love how Ken Bailey says it's at this point where we see who Jesus really is. Yeah. And we are now to decide what we're going to do with him. Yep. That's good stuff. So come to Jesus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean yeah. it's uh it's interesting because there is in the just going back to the parable of the banquet, there is a condemnation that is, I think, pronounced on those who came up with excuses to not come in to the feast that Jesus was uh, is preparing. And, uh, you know, it's, it's fascinating to see this reality that we cannot save ourselves, but we certainly can condemn ourselves, um, and we do continually. Every time that we hear the truth of the gospel proclaimed and we 
refuse to come in. We make some excuse, whatever it may be. Um, we are simply doing exactly what the uh, Pharisees were doing, who should have been the people who were the first to realize Jesus for who he was and to embrace him, but uh, many of them didn't. Most of them didn't, and they did not enter into the feast. And so as good as uh, people as they were, they're not going to be there on the last day when that eschatological feast is occurring. Uh, the Pharisees that Jesus was talking to in this passage will not be there um, unless they're repented you know, right. between now and, yeah. But I do want to say Luke does show that in the early church there were Pharisees. Absolutely. Right? Oh, and yeah. So, yeah, I, um, this isn't disagreeing with what you said at oh, all. Oh, no, no, no. At all. I don't think it is. I just I fear Christians make scapegoats of the Pharisees in an honor-shame way like yeah. they were doing with uh, people they saw as uh, in terms of righteousness inferior. Yep. Yeah. I, 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 the, the people like, look at Luke 18, like, um, the Pharisees, these are people that took religion seriously. I mean, honestly, it's very applicable to this area, right? Yep. You know, there's a lot of people around here that are trying, trying to earn their way that are living lives that, um, a moral code. And, and you look around at the world generally, it's very easy to look at that and say, how could you criticize it? Oh, yeah. But Jesus criticized it. That's right. And that's the thing is the Pharisees were not the worst of the worst. They were the best of the worst. Yep. And if you need a righteousness that exceeds them, people who are regulating every moment of their lives, mm-hmm. at least externally. Yeah. But you, I mean, there's probably <laughs> plenty of sincerity among them. Yep. But that's not enough. That's right. Because what, it, what legalism and antinomianism agree with is they both don't see the extent of the problem. They see it as a matter of following rules. Yeah. And it's much deeper than that. It's yeah. a heart that even will take rules and make it about how good I am or belittle them and say, I don't need them. I'm that great. I'm that spiritual. Yep. So will you embrace Jesus alone? Right. And if you have already, then I hope you've been encouraged just to be able to reflect on these texts again and remember that the only reason you believe is because Jesus sought you out. And brought you into his yep. banquet. And Grace. he's going to be the only reason that you are at that eschatological banquet on the last day. Mm-hmm. Because you were the crippled person that he carried in. Yep, You were the blind person that he led into the banquet. Uh, you couldn't have ever gotten yourself there, but mm-hmm. he brought you in. Yeah. And that is something to worship over. Any last yes. words? Yes, I've got two quick things. Yep. Two, I'll, I'll try to make this quick. I'm sure, we're, you know, where are we on time? Oh, you're good. Just, okay. Yeah. Okay. There's two things that aren't specifically here, but deal with David Ridges that I thought would be useful to just bring up at least. Um, so moving on from the Sunday School Manual. One was in the reading on uh, Luke 12. And um, this passage, um, you you know, I'm not going to set up the context very carefully. It's not going to be very hard to see that it's not what the Bible's teaching. Um But to read the verse, right, truly I tell you, this is the faithful um, or the unfaithful slave, right? And um, truly I tell you, he will put that one in charge of all his possessions. Okay, that's the verse. Now, the KJV, it says, he will make him ruler over all that he hath. This is his comment, David Ridges, citing DNC 84, 37, 38. Exaltation. That's, That's his interpretation of this, right? Um, Who will attain exaltation? This is his comment. Let me, this is David Ridges. Do you realize how significant the doctrine taught in verse 44 above is? Many of us have friends who do not believe 
the teaching of our church that we can become gods like Heavenly Father. Right. <clears throat> but here it is, right in the Bible. Mm-hmm. See? I mean, didn't you guys see it when you read through Luke 12? This is teaching we can become gods like Heavenly Father. Um, but here it is, right in the Bible, exclamation point. We refer to it as exaltation. There you go. So when you hear LDS people use that word, that's the code word. Mm-hmm. And it is receiving all that he hath. In other words, we can become gods living in our family units forever, having our own spirit children and raising them, teaching them, sending them to worlds like ours, and being gods over them just like Heavenly Father is over us. Thank you for the clarity, David Ridges. He's willing to say it, and he claims the Bible teaches it right here. (laughs) So... um, Anyway, uh, verse 47, he also says, this may sound harsh, but we are governed by eternal laws. Oh, okay. Um, then one, one small thing that I think is interesting, uh, uh, given what Ridges doesn't say. So in John 11, um, at 50, right? And maybe I should, I should read that. Um, this is in the Lazarus. By the way, Laz- could Lazarus raise himself from the dead? There's a theme throughout all these stories, and it's, not pointed out mm-hmm. once in this curriculum. The inability of man, apart from God. Okay, you do not understand. This is Caiaphas, right? Uh, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You do not understand that it is better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed. Now, <clears throat> readers of the Book of Mormon will see that as something God tells Nephi mm. in the murder of Laban. And it comes from Caiaphas in the New Testament. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that's interesting. So I'm like thinking, okay, come on, Ridges, point it out. Find some reason. Yeah. Find some reason that you're putting the words of Caiaphas in, into the mouth of God right. uh, for the Nephi story. Um, and this is, this is what he says, just to be, you know, uh, to, it, it, for the sake of completeness. Yeah, give it directly. He says, the solution is clear. It is better that Jesus die than our whole nation be disrupted and destroyed by the Romans. Once again, making about all, you know, Caiaphas is, anyway, it's just kind of weird. Uh, scapegoat the Romans as well. Mm. But no mention of First Nephi. Yeah. Now, on the interpreter, they say, see, you know what's great evidence? Well, we have an ancient text called the Book of Mormon, and then we have it here. So maybe Caiaphas was quoting a part of the Old Testament that was yeah. left out. Yep. See how Mormon apologetics works? Oh, yeah. So you assume there, there could be some listeners out there who just have no Nephi was apparently written in uh, like 600 BC. That's what they claim, right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that that's the claim. If it wasn't written by Joseph Smith, then uh, uh, the the apparent story is that it was from then. So, for something that is you know was written in the New Testament to be uh, referenced in something that was written in 600 BC. Uh, again, which you see that a lot in the Book of Mormon. This isn't the only instance of that, where uh, it just seems like something was inserted by somebody who was who was writing the story in uh, maybe the 19th century. Yeah, AD. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, that's. But you can see how they're the intellectual veneer, right? Of assuming things left out of the Bible. Ridges does this all the time. If JST does something, it's like, oh, see, this was left out of the Bible. Yeah. Um, and 
this is, I think, an insight into how Joseph Smith is writing this book, right? Mm -hmm. He's finding these phrases, these biblical phrases, and then kind of just putting them in different characters' mouths and stuff like this. And literally, Caiaphas, the high priest who condemns Jesus to death, right, Um, or at least was a significant part of that, Mm -hmm. uh, is... (laughs) It's the Lord saying this to Nephi, supposedly, between 600 and 592 B.C. Right. Anyway, it's... it's uh, Anyway. Yeah. I don't know, like, how you can ever convince somebody who's just assuming that, but... Yep. <laughs> worth, right. worth noting. That all you got? Yeah. Well, <laughs> no, but it's all we're going to cover <laughs> <enough> today. For <laughs> <now>. <laughs> yeah. Appreciate you listening. Uh, do be aware... Uh, we are talking about starting a distinctive Christianity discussion group that'll probably meet once a month here in Provo, Utah at First Baptist Church of Provo. And we'd love to have you join you join us for that. Follow us on social media for info. Thanks.